Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Colossians chapter 4, verse 7 through 18 is where we're going to be today. We are concluding our series of messages on the letter to the Colossians. Colossians is a small little four-chapter book about midway through the New Testament. It's one of the uh, letters of Paul. He wrote 12 or 13 letters in the New Testament, and this is one of the letters that he wrote to a church. And we have been for the past, since January, working our way through Colossians. And I must admit that today, which will be our last time preaching out of the text in Colossians for a while until we come back to it later on, uh, I, I admit that I'm going to be a little sad. This letter has become a constant companion to me over the past several months, and I hope that you have benefited from it and enjoyed Colossians. One of the reasons that we have as a real high value here, spending most of our time on Sundays preaching through books of the Bible, is because we believe that the Bible is inerrant and inspired. That means that it's breathed out by God, that it's completely true. And, and I think it's a little arrogant of preachers to think that you'll remember just standalone messages, but I think that you will probably, years from now, remember what Colossians is about, and it's about the supremacy of Christ in all things. Paul is preaching to a group of people who are, who are hearing messages that are wanting to take them away from the sufficiency and the, the supremacy and the glory of Jesus. We have a, a world that tugs at us, that wants to, wants to take our hearts and our minds off of who Jesus is and tune our hearts into idolatry and anxiety and insecurity. And this letter is a sort of, it's an azimuth. It's a, it's a shot of the compass that goes due north. And it points directly at who Jesus is and what he has done. Now today we're going to end this letter. And Paul, in these last few verses, is just kind of giving us parting instructions. Now, I must admit that as we'll read this text in just a moment, then I'll work our way back through it. This is not the type of passage that if I were just picking passages to preach from on a Sunday-to-Sunday basis, I would ordinarily land on. This is sort of a Paul giving a goodbye, like, hey, remember this guy and that guy, and oh, say hello to this guy, and oh, this guy over here, he did good things, so remember him. This is not, on the surface, a particularly exciting or glamorous portion of Scripture, but as we hopefully will see, Lord willing, that as we get into this text where Paul is just saying goodbye, we will see the glory of Christ in this text. And I have meditated on this text for two weeks, didn't preach last week, thanks to Donnie Mack for uh, just blessing us with a message out of Luke 7 last week, it's on the internet, I think there's CDs out in the back if you want to grab that. But today we're going we're gonna to plumb the depths of this last portion of Colossians. So let's do this, let's open to Colossians chapter 4. I'm going to start reading uh, in verse 7. I'm going to read to the end of the chapter. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to come back. And here's what we're going to do today. There are no notes. There are no overarching points that I want to make. There's just one thing that I want you to grasp today. There's a sentiment. There's an aroma. There's a feeling that I want to rise up in this room, and that is this. I want to, as we look at these parting instructions for Paul, I want to stir your affections for Jesus. I want you to see what a community that centers itself on the gospel and on Jesus smells like and looks like and feels like. 
And as to do this, what we're going to do is we're going to look at 10 people that Paul mentions at the end of Colossians, and I'm just going to give a couple little thoughts on each person. Some of them we're going to anchor in for a little bit, and others we're going to move through quickly. We're going to look at 10 names, and through this time, I want to stir, I want to stir our affections for Jesus and for his people and for what Jesus does in a group of people like us. So let me read Colossians 4, verse 7 through 18. And as I read, I'm going to read slowly, and I'm going to read with the expectation and the faith that the word of God is breathed out by God, that the Bible is completely true, that the words that the Bible contains are the power of God for salvation, that it touches every area of life. It's our rule. It's our authority. And so even as I read these words, I'm going to pray that the Holy Spirit would fill our hearts, soften us, and give us ears to hear. Let's read Colossians chapter 4, verse 7. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him, and Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you. A servant of Christ Jesus greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And see that that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Well, let's pray and ask God to help us. Father, as we open up this text and this book, we believe that it is your very words to us that have been supernaturally preserved for us and that the message that you gave to the Colossians is a message for modern day Americans. But God, we need your help. We are distracted people. We are, we are walking in the consequences of human brokenness and human rebellion and even for those of us that have been redeemed and born again and bought by the blood of Jesus are still struggling with the vestiges of our own sin that clouds us and hampers us and our wisdom and our ability to be able to see and savor Jesus. So God, we need your help today. We need the Holy Spirit to come and shake our 
entertainment addicted minds and settle us into the power of your word. And we need your word to transform us, God. We are selfish, faint-hearted Americans who, who think that the world rotates around us. But God, we need you now to lift up our eyes and our minds and let us see where our help comes from. Our help comes from the Lord, God. We need to realize that we need a Savior and we need to see and savor Jesus and all his glory. We don't need a, a little cute sermon on how to be a better husband or a little helpful little diatribe on three steps to this or that. God, we need to see and encounter the living God. And so help us now. Even as Paul is saying goodbye to a church, God, just dig into our hearts, Lord, with your spirit and your word and let change and transformation and sanctification and encouragement and conviction and worship to rise up from our hearts. And God, if there's people in this room, and I am certain that there are, that do not yet know Jesus, Lord, would you do it only you can, would you be so kind as to draw them? Would you give them the gift of repentance, as the scriptures say? And would you cause them to turn from self-reliance and rebellion and sin? And would you cause them to place trust and faith, which is a gift from you in Jesus? And would you make them alive? Would you take that which was dead and bring it back to life again and cause the rebellious heart in here to be born again? And most of all today, Lord, would you be glorified as we speak and think and listen and respond. And I pray this in Jesus' mighty name, amen. Ten names, one goal, to stir our affections for Jesus and his people. The first name that's mentioned there is this man named Tychicus. Tychicus, aside from being a really, really cool name, is just a guy that shows up occasionally in the scriptures in Acts. Tychicus is Paul's letter carrier. He is the type of guy who's just a faithful helper of Paul in his ministry. And we read from some accounts in Acts and at the end of Ephesians that Tychicus is probably the letter carrier for Paul on several of his letters. Certainly, this letter of Colossians, and then probably Philemon, and then also probably Ephesians. And Tychicus is just a, a guy who Paul writes has been an encouragement to him. And as I think about the life of Tychicus, and I think about people that make up a local church, I just pray and thank God for people that just have an encouraging spirit about them. Just just think about the people in your life that encourage you and the people in this church that are encouragers. And I pray that God would fill our, our church and our lives and our spirits with more and more encouragement. Tychicus is probably the type of guy that when times are rough, he is there to encourage Paul and he's there to encourage the people. Paul calls him a beloved brother, a faithful minister, a fellow servant. And he is sending Tychicus to these people for the very purpose that he would tell them how Paul is and then he would encourage them. You know, there's something sometimes about church culture where, uh, ironically enough, the very place that needs to be a place of healing and encouragement and where you can kind of let your guard down, it seems like oftentimes a religious spirit sort of grabs a hold of a place and actually church 
can be the very place that is hardest to be yourself. You know what I'm talking about? There's a sort of a religious spirit that can take hold of a church. And I think also anytime you deal with spiritual matters, there's often a tremendous amount of insecurity. And what happens a lot of times in church cultures is that people get insecure and they begin to look or magnify the faults of other people because it sort of props them up and makes them feel good. And, and as I read about and just think about Tychicus, I just thought about how valuable that type of attitude is in a church. Tychicus is a letter carrier. Tychicus is an encourager. He is a good news bearer. He is the type of person that speaks well of other people around him. He's the type of guy that, that encourages people. He's, there's certainly a whole bunch of dissident opinions and, and people that are, as Christianity is growing across the Roman Empire, there's a whole bunch of people that Paul probably ru- 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 rubbed the wrong way or that Paul has upset or he's preached against them or they didn't like that sermon or they, they didn't, maybe they didn't like that song or the church is doing this and Tychicus is the type of guy that just brings refreshment and encouragement and has good words. James chapter 3 speaks about how our mouths should be fountains not full of salt water but of fresh water. And here's just an encouragement and a, an exhortation and an admonition for us as a young church that's growing. We're going to embark on a time of tremendous change here in a couple months as we move into our new building. We're going to grow, probably numerically. We're going to probably do some things that, you know, aren't right, and then we'll have to shift focus and do something else. We're going to make some mistakes. What would it look like if we had a church full of people with the attitude of Tychicus who would just encourage us, whose mouth was just full of fresh water that brought wholeness and encouragement and life to a situation? There's a proverb, Proverbs 25, verse 11. It says that a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in settings of silver. What if we all just endeavored to make our speech completely uncritical and free of criticism and free of, of putting other people down, but we just filled the air with encouragement. What would that look like? What would that look like in our lives? I think just that simple little, that simple little focus in a community would have the ability to transform a church and a family. Tychicus is the type of guy that every church needs. Paul goes on to say that he sent him to them to encourage them. In verse 9, he mentions Onesimus our faithful and beloved brother who is one of you, they will tell you everything that has taken place here. Do you remember the story of Onesimus? A year or so ago, I preached on the short little book in the New Testament, one little chapter called Philemon. It's right before Hebrews. If you don't know the story of Onesimus, Onesimus was a runaway slave, and he was from this city of Colossae. This is his home church. And Onesimus was owned by a man named Philemon, who was one of the members of the church at Colossae. Onesimus runs away from Philemon, and we're, we don't know much about his life other than that Onesimus, as he's running away from his slave owner Philemon in the city of Colossae, heads straight to the city of Rome, where there's two million people at this time, all sorts of opportunity exists for him, probably some more uh, people to 
to, to get money from. He's gone. He's the escaped, think like this, he's the escaped slave, and he's, he's going headlong to Vegas. He's going to the big city. He's going to make it. He's going to probably set up some entrepreneurial business. He is not a believer at this time, and he goes straight to the big city where he's going to make it. He's going to hustle the streets. He's going to do his thing, but God in his providence causes Onesimus to somehow meet Paul while Paul is in prison in Rome. So we can probably surmise that Onesimus gets caught, I mean, he's a criminal on the run, probably gets caught doing something in Rome, and gets thrown in prison, and in God's providence, he causes him to come face to face with Paul, who preaches the gospel to him in this prison cell or halfway house, and through Paul's witness, Onesimus becomes a Christian and believer in Jesus. Here's just point number one, if you're taking notes or you're just thinking about God God providentially brings his people to faith if you have a young person or you have a teenage kid who's as far away from the 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 faith as you can imagine have faith because God in his providence can bring people to Jesus Onesimus runs from Colossae goes to hide in the biggest city in the world at that time and God interrupts his life causes him to probably get thrown in prison for some petty crime where he meets Paul and learns about Jesus. God is providential in the salvation and the drawing of men and women to Christ. That is incredibly encouraging. And now Onesimus comes and he becomes the ministry associate of Paul and Paul now sends him back to his very home church. I mean, I, can you imagine if you're Onesimus and you're like, Paul, I mean, I, I, I'm I, awesome. I'm all for this gospel thing, but is there anywhere else I could go? Maybe... Maybe Ephesus, maybe, maybe Philippi, and Paul, listen, this is so important. There will be times as a church grows when there will be confrontations and there will be disagreements and people will sin against one another. And what happens in a place is when they do not deal with those issues in a gospel-saturated, grace-filled way, and they just avoid it and they go to their separate corners and they never reconcile and they never deal with that sin and they never let forgiveness flow and grace to come it is completely unhealthy paul forces the issue here and he sends onesimus back to the very place where he sinned against his people and now he urges them to receive him back that is the beauty of the gospel here's the application for you if you've got some issue with a brother or sister in christ you gotta you gotta Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, drop your gift. Before you come and worship, before you come and give your gift, stop. Drop what you got and go to that brother and be reconciled. As the church grows, it is incredibly important that we as people be people that handle issues amongst one another with grace and forgiveness and a community and culture of redemption and reconciliation. Onesimus is a beautiful picture of the gospel, and it's really, really, really important that you get this. If you don't remember anything else today, I want you to remember this. Onesimus is a picture of the gospel, not because Onesimus went to Rome and got in a little bit of trouble and then decided that his life wasn't working out, and so he joined a 12-step program, and now he's got back into church because he realized that his life wasn't any good, and now he's going back to make things better. Onesimus did not grit his teeth and will his way back into good graces. Onesimus 
believed in Jesus. That's why he's a trophy of God's grace. Onesimus didn't just start coming back to church. Onesimus heard the gospel that Paul preached, believed in Jesus, was brought back from spiritual life to death, and that's why Onesimus is a picture and trophy of grace. Not because he started to try to do better. It's because Onesimus believed in Jesus. And listen, friend, if you are not yet a follower of Jesus, this is what it means to be a Christian. It doesn't mean to start coming to church. It doesn't mean that you need to do good deeds. It means that you place your trust and faith in Jesus. The Bible is very clear on this, that every person in this room, in fact, every person in the world, is dead in their sin before Jesus makes them alive. Sin has not just neutralized us. Sin has killed us. The old theologians would call it total depravity. It means that all of us, every part of our bodies, our minds, our, our emotions, our sexuality, our, 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 everything in our life is separated from God because of sin before Jesus redeems us. And we all stand guilty before God, whether we're good little church kids or whether we are terrorists in the Middle East. Every person in this room must, the only way back, we believe this here, the only way back, the only way back to life is to repent and believe in Jesus. And so Onesimus heard the gospel of Paul, and he repented and he believed. To repent and believe means that you turn from self-reliance, you turn from trust, you turn, you turn from trust in yourself, you turn from rebellion against God, and you trust in Jesus. That's what it means to be a Christian. And that's the only way back to God. We believe that here. If you are a visitor and you're just kind of checking out Christianity, you're checking out this church, or maybe you grew up in a really watered-down Christian environment where they did not preach the exclusivity of the cross and that Jesus is the only way to salvation and the only way to be right with God, then you have been fooled up to this point, but you're hearing the truth now. We believe that here. Now, if you don't believe that yet, you're still welcome here. We're going to treat you with grace and love and joy, and we're glad that you're here. But you need to know that the message of the Bible is that Jesus, trust in Jesus, what Jesus did on the cross is the only way back to God. And here's what Jesus did for Onesimus, and here's what Jesus does for you and me. Jesus becomes the the wrath-bearing substitute. He absorbs the punishment of God for our sins. You see, Onesimus should have been killed for his crime. And you and I should have been killed for our rebellion, whether our rebellion is blatant and public or whether our rebellion is, is internal and self-righteous. All of us, every one of us, the Bible's clear on this, every human being after the fall has rebelled against God except for Jesus. And Jesus lives a perfect life on this earth and Jesus becomes a perfect substitute and he then voluntarily lays down his life as a substitute on the cross. And what the Bible says in Romans and in other places is that Jesus absorbs, he becomes, this is a biblical word called propitiation. He bears the wrath of God for us. And he exhausts, he exterminates the anger of God against human rebellion for all those that would repent and believe. And so what does it mean to be a Christian? It means that you have turned from trusting in yourself for right standing with God. And it means that you have trusted in Jesus alone as the sacrifice for your sins. And that is what it means to be a Christian. When you do that, he makes you alive. Birth, new birth, life comes. The gospel, the power of the gospel saves you. And it literally brings you to life and causes you to have faith in Jesus. If you have not done that, Today, friends, is the day to do that. That's why Onesimus is a Christian. And if you're not a Christian, that's how you become a Christian.
right there. So Onesimus is a trophy of God's grace. He is a picture of the gospel. Let's keep going. Third person, Aristarchus. My fellow prisoner greets you. Aristarchus, we don't know much about him in the scriptures, but he, by some accounts and some um, early Christian witnesses of this, some writings outside of the scriptures, tell us that Aristarchus is probably a voluntary prisoner. He is not a guy that got caught. He actually just loved Paul so much that he, he was a voluntary prisoner with Paul. He, he just goes and he, he, we find him in prison with Paul on several occasions. And this is just a, a, a lesson to us that isn't it great to just have people like Aristarchus in your life who are just with you? You know, when you're down and when things are not going your way and there's just Aristarchus is there who will call you and who will just sit with you. People that aren't just for you, but they're with you. We, we need a church full of Aristarchuses who, who, who just love one another. Let's keep going. The fourth guy. This is one of my favorites. Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. Mark, who is also called John Mark in the scriptures, is a guy that shows up. In fact, he becomes the writer of the gospel Mark. Uh, his mother's house in Acts chapter 12 is the place where Peter, after he... Uh, escapes from prison, comes, and he finds the early church gathering and praying in Mark's mother's house. And so his mother is an early convert to Christianity and is probably one of the hubs of the Jerusalem church. And he becomes this man, John Mark, or Mark, becomes an early sort of apprentice and ministry associate of Peter, the apostle Peter. Later on in the book of Acts, Mark then, who we find out here in Colossians, is the cousin of Barnabas, joins Paul and Barnabas on one of Paul and Barnabas's early missionary journeys. But apparently in Acts chapter 13, we find that John Mark, or Mark, he, he sort of wimps out or tires out or gets, gets, gets distracted or whatever, but he leaves, he deserts Paul and Barnabas on one of their missionary journeys. He's like, I'm out, I'm, I'm gone, I'm gone. This, this cat Paul, every time he goes into a city, they stone him. Uh, it's tough. He's getting bit by snakes, shipwreck. I'm out. And so he's gone. And Paul and Barnabas keep going. And then in Acts chapter 15, we read that Paul and Barnabas are back to their kind of their home base in Jerusalem. And now they're about to launch out on another missionary journey. And Barnabas says, let's take Mark with us. And Paul says, uh-uh. We're not taking Mark. I don't care if he's your cousin. When we were on our way to Pamphylia, he wimped out on us. And we're not taking that cat. Send him back to basic training or ranger school, whatever. But we're not taking him with us because he whipped out once and the stakes are too high. And the disagreement between Paul and Barnabas over Mark was so sharp that they split ways. They actually parted ways. And Paul goes this way and he takes Silas with him. And Barnabas goes this way and he takes his cousin Mark with him. And that's the last we read of Paul and Barnabas and their great missionary fellowship, they parted ways over this guy. But we can know that Mark somehow gets back into the good graces of Paul because here in Colossians, Paul now years later is writing to the Colossian church and he says, hey, hey, Mark is going to come to you. He's the cousin of Barnabas. So receive him. 
And in fact, in 2 Timothy uh, t- chapter 4, we read about as Paul, the last letter that he wrote, we read Paul mention Mark again in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and, and verse, uh, at the, there at verse 11. He says, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you for he is very useful to me for ministry. So here's the lesson. Mark, at one point in his life, is a deserter, a wimp who couldn't take it. But then later on in his life, he now comes back into good graces with Paul, who, who encourages him and commends him to the Colossian church. And in the last thing that we have that the apostle Paul wrote, he says that this man is very useful to me. Mark is a picture of grace. Mark is a picture of the gospel. Mark is a picture of how somebody who once was afraid and anxious and and who deserted the cause of the gospel now is brought back into good grace. And by the way, there's just this beautiful little thing. It's in parentheses in my Bible, but it says, concerning whom, he's speaking of Mark, Paul now, back in Colossians chapter 4, verse 10, it says, Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you've received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. Why would Paul write that? This guy, Mark, who you've received instructions about, if he comes, welcome him. What were those instructions? Virtually every biblical scholar and person who has commented on this text says that Mark, because of his failure early on in Acts chapter 13, word probably got out that Mark was, didn't have what it takes. He, he left Paul and Barnabas on the trip to Pamphylia in Acts chapter 13. So if you see this guy, Mark, Man, look, look, he doesn't, Mark, the word is out. His reputation has gone before him. But now Paul is saying that, look, the instructions are going out to this brother is restored. Now, greet him as one of you. How many times, listen to this, listen to this, how many times are we afraid to exert ourselves in a situation because we know that the people in that situation know about our past or previous failure? How many, think about this now, how much, how many things don't happen for the gospel because people are consumed with their previous prior failures and they let that lock them down and not be available to put themselves back out there again for use by Jesus. Mark, Mark, could have, Mark could have been the guy that was restored and just kind of went underground and said, hey man, I, yeah, I'm the guy. Like he's got the scarlet letter, you know, D for deserter stitched on his, that's his, that's his jacket, that's his jersey. I'm the guy. Pamphylia, yeah, I was out. <laughs> Couldn't hack it. That's me. And he'd be the guy at some dusty little church in the backside of the Roman Empire giving his testimony. It's the same thing all the time. Yeah, I'm the guy. I'm the guy. I was the guy that couldn't hack it. But he presses through past failure. And Paul, the very guy that he failed, gives him a ringing endorsement. And he says, you've received instructions about this guy. When he comes to you, he's not the guy who deserted you or deserted me any longer. He's now Mark. Greet him. Love him. Open your arms wide with grace and joy and reception to Mark. And oh, by the way, a couple of decades later, Mark gets in on one of the, one of the crazy little things we like to call the writers of the gospel. So put that in your woes me pipe, 
Mark and smoke it, man. You went from being a deserter of Paul to a writer of one of the Gospels. Selah. Let's bring this back home. There have been certain circles and situations where I have been very reticent to be a bold Christian's a bold Christian because I know in those circles and in those situations I have not been a good witness. And so in that moment when we are letting a past failure dictate how we're going to comport ourselves for Jesus, we are treasuring, listen, just think about this, we are treasuring our failure which is in the past which Christ has redeemed. We are treasuring our lack in the past greater than what needs to happen in that moment for the cause of Jesus. That, friends, is idolatry. When you treasure your failure in the past greater than the good of Jesus in that moment, that is idolatry. That means we are worshiping, we are placing higher importance on our failure in the past than we are what Jesus has done in us and now wants to do through us in that situation. And I have, I have done that. I have been that guy. And Mark is a great encouragement to us to not be that guy. He comes. Welcome him. Verse 11, and Jesus, who is called Justice. Uh, Jesus was a relatively common name in that time. And uh, Jesus, this guy, they called him Justice because they didn't want to mix him up with, obviously, Jesus. And Justice is uh, a Roman uh, name that means the righteous one. Can you imagine if your name was Jesus, the righteous one? <laughs> That'd be some tough things to live up to. He goes on to say, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God. So what he's saying there is that Jesus, who's called Justice, and Mark, because of Barnabas, and Aristarchus, these three guys are the only Jewish men. That's what he means when he says, these are the only guys of the circumcision that are with me. These three guys are the only guys that helped Paul in his ministry. Of the people that Jesus came for, I'm not saying that these are the only three Jewish Christians, but Paul, who's the great apostle of the church in the first century there, he's got three Jews that are helping him. Here's the point that hammers home to me is that we, that religious people often miss it. Religious people often miss it. And I I don't want to be a religious guy. I don't want to have 30, 40 years of church under my belt and miss what God is doing in in my life. Let's keep going. Epaphras, verse 12, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. Epaphras is the guy who heard the gospel from Paul. He's a native of Colossae. This is his home church. He is very likely the pastor of this home church. He is very likely the founder of this home church because in Colossians chapter 1, At the beginning of our study of Colossians, we heard and we found out that Epaphras was the one who brought the gospel to the Colossian church. And what very likely happened is Epaphras was in Ephesus when Paul was preaching and had caused a great stir and a revival to happen in Ephesus. And Epaphras, who's probably there on business, hears the gospel, receives Christ, repents of his sin, believes in Jesus, becomes a Christian, and then goes back to Colossae, takes the gospel back to his hometown, plants a church there, 
preaches the gospel of Jesus and becomes the first pastor of that church. And now we get a picture of the type of guy that Epaphras is. He's, he's, he greets you and he is always struggling. That word in the Greek means to strive or to fight. He's always fighting on your behalf in his prayers so that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. He's one of those type of guys who doesn't just pass you in the hall. He's like, oh yeah, hey, what's up, dog? Oh, how's that? Oh yeah, praying for you, praying for you. I mean, you know how people, that's just kind of what we throw out and like when we, we don't really know what to say as Christians, yeah, praying, praying for you. Paul, Epaphras is the type of guy who looks in the eye, grabs you by the collar and says, I'm, I'm beseeching God for you, man. We need a church full of Epaphrases who will fight for us because the world is hard and the enemy is against you. We need Epaphrases who will wrestle with God for us. And we need churches with good pastors who will talk about Jesus and who will not avoid hard truths and who will preach the precious blood of Jesus and that won't give people just tickling, tickle their ears with truth that they want to hear. We need the Epaphrases of the world who will labor on our behalf for Jesus. I want to be an Epaphras, and I want a church full of Epaphrases. Let me press this home just a little bit. I hadn't intended to do this, but let me just read for you uh, from Ephesians. It's over to the left. This is the type of guy Epaphras is. Epaphras in, uh, in, in Paul in Ephesians chapter 4 talks about how God has given certain offices and gifts to the church. In verse 11, it says he gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood. So God gives gifts. He gives epaphrases to the local church to pray for them and to teach them so that they will be mature, so that they'll be able to weather life's storms to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, verse 14, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. And so thank God for the Epaphrases in churches who will commit themselves to good and sound doctrine. For some crazy reason, and I believe it's inspired by hell, doctrine has become a bad word. A bunch of little 20-year-old punks who come across some little postmodern book written by some pastor in Michigan who, who doesn't believe in the orthodox Jesus and historic Christian faith. They hang out at Starbucks. They grow a little soul patch. They mess up their hair with gel in it. And then they talk about wanting to have a conversation and they act like doctrine and biblical orthodoxy is bad for you. It's not bad for you. It is good for you. So if, you're, if Crosspoint isn't your place, if you don't settle down here, go to a church where the pastor is like a Epaphras, who preaches about Jesus out of the word of God, who stands on the scriptures for you, because this world is broken, and it is against God, and every generation comes up with a thousand new ideas that, want to, that, are, that are seductive, that want to draw you away from Jesus, but the written, infallible, inerrant word of God that has stood the test of time is what you need, you need it today, you need it 10 years from now, you need the gospel 20 years from now, you need it over and over and over, and you need a crazy guy that's willing to 
tell you about Jesus and the exclusivity of Jesus and the sovereignty of Jesus and the power of Jesus over and over and over again. That's what you need. Yeah. That was actually the best you've ever done in one of those types of situations. That's why a lot of times I'll rail against contemporary American Christianity because a lot of it's full of junk. And I know some of you think, oh, Brad, just, he's like a crusty old curmudgeon. What I'm trying to do there is guard your hearts, man. Don't just accept stuff because it's on TV or because they sell it at Lifeway. A lot of it's junk. A lot of it seductively over the course of time will draw your heart away from the supremacy of Christ in all things. And it will turn Christianity into a leadership lesson for an executive or a self-help message. It turns the message of the greatness of God and the glory of Christ in the universe into pragmatism for Americans. That's not Christianity. It's not the Bible and it's not what you need. It's not what you're going to get here. Selah. Verse 13, for I bear witness with him that he has worked hard for you and for those at Laodicea and Hierapolis. Verse 14, I've lost count. I don't know, Luke is the sixth guy. I don't know, seven, eight, whatever. There's 10 guys in this list. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you. Thank God for people who have skills, man. Skills with a Z. You know, Luke, he just uses what he has for the glory of God. Man, he's a doctor. Luke's a doctor. And Paul takes him with him on a second missionary journey because he got sick so much on his first missionary journey. And he takes Luke with him. Thank God for people who can do stuff and can apply the gift that God has given them for the gospel. Look, for the Christian, there is no secular and spiritual stuff. There's no, this is this part of my life and this is the Christian part of my life. If you're a doctor, you're, you're, you, you've been made a doctor for the glory of Jesus. If you're a school teacher, you've been made a school teacher for the glory of Jesus and his gospel. If you're selling something, you're selling it for the glory of Jesus. Even if it's widgets, even, even if it's the little thing that they put around the shoelaces. Like, who makes those things, man? I don't know, probably some 12-year-old in Indonesia. We should shut that factory down. But somebody's making it, right? And whatever you do, I don't care what you do. I don't care if you punch a ticket in a cubicle in Aflac or Synovus or CB&T and you hate your job. Lift up your eyes because God has put you there for a reason. Not to be a doctor, not to just be a teacher, not to draw a check, but to be the light of God in that place. Luke is one of those cats, man. He's a doctor. He goes along to be a doctor with Paul. And guess what Luke ends up doing? He's one of the four. He writes a crazy little thing we like to call the gospel of Luke. Put that in your doctor pipe and smoke it. I don't condemn smoking. I think it's bad for you. I just, it's an expression. Although, I mean, you've heard my thoughts about smoking and drinking. Come on, ease up on that. I mean, just, we're all jacked up, you know. I don't even have time. I'm sorry I got into that. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you as does Demas. So far what we know of Demas is he's a pretty good cat. 
And he's hanging in there with Paul. But if you go to Philippian, or if you go to Second Timothy chapter four, we Demas resurfaces in Second Timothy chapter four. The only other time we hear about Demas, it says in Second Timothy chapter four, verse nine, he says, "Do your best to come to me soon." For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. We find out that Demas allows the spiritual battle, whatever it was, to overtake him. And he ends up deserting Paul and maybe the gospel, maybe Jesus. We don't know anything about Demas. We don't know if he came back to the faith. I think we need to be careful that when the Bible ends, we need to end our speculation and our, our statements. But all we know is that Demas has evidently walked away from Jesus. That's why we need to continue to preach the gospel. That's why we need to hear about Jesus over and over again. In a community where the gospel is assumed, then the gospel becomes confused, and then the gospel is lost, and you have a church full of Demases. That's why, Lord willing, 10 years from now, I will be talking about Jesus and what he did on the cross, and I will be calling people to repentance and belief in Jesus. That's why 20 years from now, I will be talking about Jesus and what he did on the cross and calling people to repent and believe in Jesus. That's why 30 years from now, Lord willing, I will be talking about what Jesus has done on the cross and calling people to repent and believe in Jesus. Because there are Demases among us. Do not just presume that all of us are believers here. That's why... Lord willing, every Sunday, even if we're talking about something that doesn't specifically talk about the work of Christ, we weave the gospel into everything we do. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 5, test yourself lest you be in the faith. Men, if you have it on autopilot and you think that somehow or another because you come to cross point where they talk about Jesus all the time that you have it okay and you're not pressing forward into the faith, you are not opening up the Bible for yourself, you are not yourself giving your life and your, your, your heart to Christ, and you are not exposing yourself to the power of the word and community and fellowship and accountability, you are not doing that, you could end up being a Demas. This is not a neutral environment we live in, this is a war zone. Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8, 9, and 10, he says that be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a lion, seeking whom he may devour. But he doesn't jump out from behind a bush with pitchforks and horns painted red. He jumps out from behind a bush. He sneaks up on you with little entertainment, subtle little stuff, little self, just this kind of, this, this, it's very deceptive. And so you need the wisdom of the scriptures. You need the wisdom of the community. You need vigilance. You need to have your heart soft before Jesus, lest you be a Demas, lest I be a Demas. I believe in the sovereignty of God and salvation. I believe that I am a Christian because before I chose God, he chose me in eternity past. I get that from Ephesians chapter one, if you're interested in it. But I also believe in the preservation of the saints. I believe in eternal security. I believe that God has made me a Christian and I believe he's gonna keep me a Christian. But I am not presuming that I can put it on autopilot and that it's all said and done for me. I have to continue to give my life to Christ to make my election sure, as First Peter says.
Uh, as Paul says in the first chapter of Colossians, that if indeed I continue in the faith, my goal is that at the end of the day, before I stand before God, that there would be no Demases in Crosspoint. Don't presume that you can put it on autopilot just because you raised your hand at youth camp on Thursday night or you responded to an altar call or you went to a men's Bible study once and you kind of show up relatively regularly that you got it. Test yourself lest you be in the faith. May God rouse our demises and bring them back to faith in Jesus. Verse 15, give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. Man, give us some Nymphas. Nymphas, Nympha practiced hospitality. And you know what hospitality was? In the original language Greek, hospitality is a word that means xenophilia, which is the opposite of our word xenophobia. You know, if you, somebody doesn't like people from other ethnic groups or that's not like them, we call them a xenophobe. They're scared of other ethnicities or people not like them. But the word for hospitality in the Greek, which is what Nympha practiced by welcoming people into her home, is that she was a xenophilo. She loved strangers. She was a stranger lover, man. She opened up her house. People that weren't like her, people that didn't go to the same high school that she did, people that are outside of her socioeconomic demographic. She had a heart for people outside of her natural zone, and we need a church full of nymphas. Verse 16, and when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And that's why we read the scriptures here. I mean, we just believe the Bible should be read. In fact, one of the things that I'm really looking forward to in our new building is we're going to get together some Friday night or Saturday night or Sunday night, and we're just going to have a, a, we're just going to call it Word. I, maybe we'll come up with a better title than that. But we're going to get together, and we're just going to read. We're going to have readers, and we're going to read the Gospels. We're going to read the Bible out loud. Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy, he says, don't forsake the public reading of scriptures. And we're going to gather together. Maybe we'll even turn out the lights and light candles or something and try and, you know, make it all cool and hip and identify with the first century underground church or whatever. We're going to get together and read the Bible. There's power in the red, written word of God. That's why, that's why we read the Bible here because the very words of Scripture have power. That's why when I read it, I read it slow. We read the whole thing because there's an expectation that the Holy Spirit descends on us and seizes our hearts. And Paul has such confidence that the Holy Spirit is inspiring him that he's saying, read this. It's given by God to me for you and then pass it on to these cats and have them read it and then get the letter that they, I wrote them, the Laodiceans, which is probably Ephesians, and you read it. The word has authority. It has power. It transforms us. It saves us and renews us. Sila. In verse 17, and say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Paul says to this young man, Archippus, keep going at it, man. Don't be the guy that like, gets excited and then he volunteers for something and then he, two or three months later, he's like back off to being shady. Be a guy that sticks your nose in there, man, and gives his heart to something bigger than himself. Stay with it, man. Be the faithful dude that's always there. 
who you can count on, who the community can trust, the type of guy who people know your life, and when, when there's a need, you're there, man, and not just a need when the guy calls for it, but he's the type of guy that's there six months from now. He's the type of guy that's there two years from now. He's like the rock of Gibraltar of the local church. He's just one of those cats who's there, man, and he's there over and over and over again. Be that type of guy, Archippus. Fulfill your ministry. Be one of those stable dudes who, whom churches are built on. Give us an Archippus. Give us a church full of Archippus. Give us Tychicus who will be encouraging good news bearers. Give us Onesimuses who are trophies of God's grace, who don't avoid confrontation, who reconcile and let the redemptive power of the gospel flow. Give us Aristarchuses, people who will grieve with us, who will suffer with us voluntarily. Give us Marks who are, who are people that don't let past failure dominate their future. Give us, give us guys like Jesus who's called Justice, who aren't caught up in religion but serve the true and living Jesus Give us pastors and shepherds like Epaphras who will, in the face of, of, of fierce opposition, preach the word to us. Give, us. give us people like Luke who see all of their lives as for the glory of God. May there be no Demases among us. May we not walk away from Jesus. Give us nymphas, people who open up their house to strangers and make us all our kippuses who hang in there for the long haul. Let us all see and savor Jesus in this. Fall in love with the gospel and what it does in a group of people. And let us reject nominal, cultural, consumer-driven Christianity where people hop from church to church. But let us embrace the longevity and the joy and the glory of what happens in a group of people when the gospel seizes them and they're full of people like this. Jesus is exalted. Men, women, and children are drawn to Jesus. People give their heart to Jesus and the mission of God advances. May we be one of those types of places. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for these 10 people that Paul mentioned. Thank you for Paul's letter to the Colossians that has enriched my life so much over these past four or five months. Now, Lord, as we sing in response to you, my prayer is simply twofold. First, for the Christians that are in this room, you would stir our affection for Jesus and for one another. That if there's any area that has become clear to us by your Holy Spirit that we are falling short in in our life or where you're pushing on us, God, would you, would, you, would you cause us to be made more like Jesus? If we need to repent and trust in you, God, help us to repent of our sins and, and let the times of refreshing come that comes with forgiveness and God, if there's some area that we need to, if we're Christians already and we need to just maybe step out there, if we've, been, if we've been treasuring some past failure or some insecurity over what Jesus wants to do through us right now, God, would we lay that down and strive for all that you have for us? I'd do that. Cause Jesus and his work and his joy and his gospel and his, his glory to rise up in our hearts and stir our affections for you and for one another. 
Or if there's a Christian in this room who's got kind of a nominal connection, a sort of a loose connection to the local body of believers, whether it's this one or it's the other church that maybe they're visiting from, God, would you, would you do a work in their heart? Would you let them see that, that, that the Bible's not just some Aesop fable for the Christian? It is, it's, it's not just some big book of Proverbs that helps us live a better life. It is a book written to a people who you call to live together in a way that becomes corporately a display of the gospel. God, stir our hearts for you and for your people and for the local church and all of its ragtag, messed up, grace-filled ways. God, help us stir our hearts for one another and for Jesus. And God, if there's a person in this room who does not know you, would you be so kind as to, by your Holy Spirit, give them the gift of repentance and faith? Would you make them see Jesus? And would they turn from self-reliance self-righteousness and sin, and would they trust in Jesus, who alone is the only sufficient substitute for our rebellion? God, would you cause them to do that even as we're singing a few songs of response? Do that, I pray, Jesus. As we worship you in these next few songs, God, let the Holy Spirit cause joy to rise up in our hearts. Pray this in Jesus' name.